we are talking about claims of Jesus. Uh, I can remember being in Azerbaijan. Uh, we taught English there. I taught English there twice. Um, and I can remember, so it's a Muslim country, so everyone there is Muslim. That's how, they, that's how it works there. You say, oh, are you Muslim? They say, well, I'm Azerbaijani. Of course I'm Muslim. So uh, I, I went out with different students. We go for chai and for tea. And um, so you kind of had to talk about Jesus over conversation with people. We weren't allowed to go and preach on the street corner or something. You just did it through relationship, which I was fine with. I like that. So we'd go for chai, and I remember one particular student, we were talking about the person of Jesus, and he said to me, well, um, I have the Bible on my mantelpiece. The Bible is a holy book, and we love the Bible. We think it's great. And Jesus, I, th- I respect Jesus. I think he's a great prophet and an incredible guy. And so, um, you know, that's where it's at. And so I said, oh, have you read the Bible that's on your mantelpiece? And he said, no, no, I haven't. I said, oh. Well, you know, I'd encourage you to do that because it's very interesting that in the Bible, which is you're saying is the holy book, Jesus is saying things that I think kind of make him to sound not like a great prophet, like the prophet who's directing people to God, but actually he says things that make him sound like he's saying he is God. And that makes him maybe not the best prophet in that sense, in the sense of sharing what God is saying definitely. But in the sense of claiming to be God himself, that's not a good prophet thing to do, I don't think. I think that would get you in trouble. You know, some people say Jesus never said straight out that he is God, and they struggle with, like, where's that verse where Jesus says, I am God? And, uh, and this morning, actually, we're talking about claims of Jesus. They're all through the summer, we're talking about different claims Jesus made, and we picked eight out of the book of John. And so uh, last week we did where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And this week um, we're doing the claim Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. I am what? I am. We'll talk about that. What, mean, what that means. If you're like, I don't know what that means. That's a weird claim. We'll explain it. What, did, what claims did Jesus make? And what did that mean when Jesus said certain things? That's what we're talking about. And so this claim, um, before Abraham was, I am. That comes from the book of John in chapter 8, and it's right in the middle of an argument. If you ever wondered what Jesus was like in an argument, you can read John chapter 8, because he's having an argument with people about himself and about the claims he's making. So we're going to pick up in the middle of the argument, which is not a good thing to do, but we'd have to probably, we'd have to read the whole chapter um, in order to catch it all. So I'd encourage you, you can go back and read through it if you're wondering what Jesus sounds like in an argument. That's what he sounds like. If you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 8, and we'll pick up in the middle. So verse 48, and it's right in the middle of the argument, as you'll see. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So you can see it's the middle of the argument. They're They're calling him names. Samaritan, and they think he has a demon. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is, he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. 
are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. There you go. But I do know Him and keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and, you have, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. It's like a full-on argument with like name-calling and rocks. They're going to throw rocks. This is, it's the real deal here. This is an argument about who Jesus is. And Jesus stands up for himself pretty well. And the argument is about a challenge between religious standing and true faith. That's really what they're arguing about. Is they say, well, we have this standing, so who are you? And, you know, we're under Abraham. What are you talking about? And Jesus is challenging them with true faith. And he keeps pointing to himself. And Jesus is going to go all in. And so my big idea this morning is that Jesus is God, who was and who is and who is to come. So what's the claim Jesus is making? I had a person who emailed me once. It was one of those pastor emails. I get pastor emails. And this was a pastor email. I got it. And it said, um, "You." this was at Maple Ridge Community Church. It said, you guys make too much of Jesus. God is upset. He's angry. He's jealous that you're talking too much about Jesus. And I thought, whoa, this is a bit weird. And I had to like reread it a few times. And I was like, is this possible? Could like God be jealous, angry Jesus? And I wrote back, um, Jesus is God. So I don't think he's jealous that we're making too much of him. And you know, <laughs> that's all I wrote. I just wrote a simple answer. It's like, I don't know what else to say really to you, but we have different views, obviously. And the thing, you know, if we were making too much of Jesus, I think that would be a good problem. And in fact, I, was, I took it as a compliment that we're making too much of Jesus because um, he is the one. So, but I, it's a question. Is God jealous of Jesus? Could God be jealous of Jesus? Is he mad when Jesus is made too much of? Is that even possible? What is Jesus saying in this passage? And what is it, why does it make everyone mad? Because they're saying that too, in a way, these people. They're like, whoa, what are you saying? And they're upset for God. Why does everyone get mad? You know, it looks like everyone's overreacting. And I think it's about a grammar mistake or something, something to do with grammar. Because Jesus should say at that part, before Abraham was, I was. Some of you are like, grammar, I don't know what, what? Is this a test? Is this a test? Before Abraham was, I was. Shit, that's what you, sh- that's proper grammar. Before Abraham was, I was. I was before him, right? And Jesus says, I am. And now suddenly everyone's mad and they want to th- throw rocks at him and kill him. What's the deal? 
it goes back to Moses and the burning bush. Back in Exodus chapter 3 is where this reference comes from and why everyone's so mad. See, the people of Israel, they were slaves in Egypt for the, you know, many hundreds of years they were stuck there. And then Moses, maybe you've heard this story, Moses in the basket, and he drifts along and he gets brought into the house of Pharaoh, but he's a Hebrew. And so the Egyptians, they raise him. And finally, one day he realizes he's Hebrew. And so he goes out and he tries to protect the slaves and he ends up killing a slave driver. And so because he kills this guy, he murders him, manslaughter, whatever he whatever court reference he'd get, but he killed the guy. And so he went on the run, and he ran off, and he went to a different uh, area, to Midian, and he became a shepherd and grew his beard really long. And he was the shepherd, and he ended up for 40 years, he's out there, and he goes up on the mountain, and up on the mountain he finds this bush, and the bush is burning. But it's not burning up. It's not like catching wildfire or something. It's just there's just this flame on the bush. And so he says, oh, this is really weird. And so he goes closer and closer to it. And as he gets close to it, God's voice speaks out of the bush, out of this burning bush. And God says, Moses. How God talks. Moses, take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground, 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 ground. Because God's in the cave in the bush. No. And so Moses takes off his sandals, and then God goes into this whole thing about how he's heard the cries of his people in Egypt, and he's going to send a delivery. He's going to rescue them and bring them out and back into the promised land. And so Moses says, oh, that's interesting. And God says, actually, the deliverer is you. I picked you. And there's that whole funny part where Moses says, me? No, I don't. No, like not the hero of the story. He's like, no, no, me? No, someone else. I know lots of people. You can pick someone else. Don't pick me. And God says, no, it's you. And Abraham, or Moses says, well, I don't talk very well. I, 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 I stutter and I shouldn't talk in front of people. It's not good. And God says, no, I picked you. And then Moses starts trying to find re-excuses and stuff. So Moses says, well, what if they ask me who sent me? And I, what, what if they ask your name? I don't know what to say. I'm going to say your God sent, our God sent me. What, what do I say your name is? And this is what the, it says in, Mo, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation. Just two generations. I am who I am. So no one who is listening to Jesus use that grammar misunderstood what he said. No one who heard him thought he was just saying it wrong. They all knew exactly what he was saying. Jesus was saying he was taking the name of Yahweh, the name that God had said, this is my name, I am. And Jesus was saying, this is my name, I am. He was saying he is one with Yahweh, Adonai, Jehovah, the great I am. 
And when Jesus says that, they all freak out. That's why they're going to throw rocks at him, because now he's gone way over the line, if he hadn't already. Revelations 1 verse 8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And I think that is the picture of I am, who, the one who, who was and who is and who is to come, or who is and who was and is to come. Jesus who was. Jesus who was. I had a, a King's Kids leader when I was a young person and I was doing missions trip. I did them with King's Kids, which was a youth with a mission arm branch. And so I was on this trip, and I can remember I grew up in the church, so I had, I had read all my Bible story books, kids' books, and then I got a Bible when I was seven. I read my Bible, and so I knew the stories. And my kids, King's Kids leader, his name was Todd Rakowski. He got up, and I remember when he told the story of creation because I was almost offended by it as a kid. He got up, and this is how he told the story of creation. He said, in the very beginning, before there was anything else, there was God the Father, there was Jesus, and there was the Holy Spirit. And God the Father said to Jesus, Jesus, I love you. And Jesus said, oh, Father, I love you. And then Jesus turned to the Spirit and said, Spirit, I love you. And the Spirit said to Jesus, Jesus, I love you. And then the Spirit turned to the Father and said, Father, I love you. And the Father turned and said, I love you. And there was love that was happening. And out of this love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they decided to create the world, to create humans who could share, receive, and give love and be in relationship, this kind of relationship. And as a kid, and then he goes into the story. As a kid, I was like, oh, that, what? What? Did no, in the beginning, was dark, it was dark, and then just God talks. God, creator God, right? Isn't that what? I don't remember that part. So being like love, and they're loving. There's all this love happening. What? Jesus is there? I don't remember that. Isn't it God? Doesn't God talk? He's the creator, and he just says words, and the world comes to be. If Genesis isn't clear enough, and you know what? There are some us parts in Genesis. If Genesis isn't clear enough, there's some other places that are super clear. We read one last week. John 1, 2-4 says, He, Jesus, was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Or Colossians, if you're worried about John, there's Paul. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 17, says Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So for Jesus to say, before Abraham was, I am, sounds like this. Sounds like the God who's claiming to be, who to always have been. That's what Jesus is saying. So Jesus isn't an add-on. He doesn't show up halfway through the story. Oh, Jesus, yeah, he shows up halfway. In, I think in Matthew in the New Testament, isn't that where Jesus starts? 
No. Jesus has been there all the time. And that's why as we go back through the Old Testament, it's important. It's one of the things we, as a, actually a Mennonite Brethren Church, we love to do, is to take our Jesus glasses and put them on and to look through the rest of the Bible with Jesus glasses on. How, what does the rest of this say about Jesus? And how do we see this and read this in light of Jesus? Because the whole story, the entire narrative of God's love can, can be best and clearly seen through the light of Jesus. That's what he's saying when he says, I am. I was. And he's the one who is. I had a, I'm telling you all my weird stories, but I had a, a missionary I ran into once who said, we shouldn't pray to Jesus. And he said, we should pray to the Spirit because Jesus is in heaven and there's no verse in the Bible that says you should pray to Jesus. And I was like, okay, that's weird. And um, so I walked away and I thought about it more. And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought that's ridiculous. And it's ridiculous because Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. We're not talking about a dead Jesus or Jesus who's far removed from us. We're talking about Jesus who is alive, who's present with us. And to claim to be the great I am is to claim to be God today. To be God today. I read in the newspaper this week, there was a sidebar and it was on, there. they found um, a special thing in some special room and they think it's a piece of Buddha. So it's a piece of his scalp and so it's a relic and so it's in a golden box or whatever. And the rest of, there were some other points in this sidebar and the other point was they had a piece of, a, they had a molar and they thought it was from Buddha and it was considered a relic and then recently they did testing on it and they found out it wasn't. So that was really disappointing but they found this other piece and so they're hopeful that this, is, this could be a relic, this could be a piece of Buddha. And the interesting thing is in Christianity, although there are relics in Christianity, there aren't relics like that. So we might have a nail. I think there was a nail thing at some point in history. And there was a shroud, you know. And there's, um, what else? There's, uh, oh, holy grails. How could we forget the holy grail? I mean, that's the relic, right? If we could find the holy grail, that would be the thing. But there's no Jesus, There's no Jesus parts or pieces or bones or whatever because Christianity doesn't hold water if there's no risen Jesus. And this is what Tim Tim Keller says. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said if he rose from the dead. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching— but whether or not he rose from the dead, that's the real question. See, when Jesus died, he was crucified on the cross, and all the historians, they'll agree Jesus was crucified. There was all these different testimonies of that. The question, the thing in question is, did he rise? And you know what? When Jesus was alive and walking around the earth, he said to everyone, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again on the third day. And he said it publicly, and he said it privately. He said it to his disciples. He said it into big groups. And so everyone knew this was the case. So when Jesus was executed on the cross, the Pharisees and the council, the high priests, who had Jesus killed, they decided, well, okay, we got to make sure that no one plays funny with this. And so they went to Pilate, and they said, Pilate, Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead, so we think his disciples are going to steal his body, and they're going to say, Jesus rose from the dead. So we need Roman soldiers. We don't want temple guards. We don't want people to get bribed. We want real soldiers. 
to go in to guard the tomb. We want it to be sealed and shut and guarded. And so Pilate said, okay. The guards all went to guard the tomb. So everyone's feeling good. Everyone's feeling safe. Suddenly on the third day, weird things start happening. These ladies go to the tomb. They got their spices because they're going to anoint his body. And they go there and surprise. There's no soldiers. And the tomb has been open. And they look inside and there's no Jesus. There's no body. Just the, the clothes are folded up in the corner. And they say, what is going on? And then suddenly angels appear to them. This is their story. Angels appear to them and say, he's not here. He's risen from the dead. And they run back and they go to tell the others. And one of them stays back behind. And she's there crying and she's just, she doesn't know what to think. And Jesus appears to her. And then she runs back and, and the others come running and they come and they find the same thing. An empty tomb, no soldiers. And angels appear to them and say, he's risen from the dead. And they start going out and they're wondering what is going on. And then Jesus starts appearing to all these people. Different groups, people walking along the road. Jesus is walking with them. And they get to the room and Jesus unveils himself. And he eats food. He says, I'm not a ghost. I'm alive. I'm risen from the dead. And groups, all sorts of different groups start seeing Jesus. Even a group of 500 people at one time. Are they hallucinating this? 500 people together see Jesus risen. Now, these priests and these these leaders and council guys, when the guards come back and they talk about earthquakes and scary stuff and they ran away from their post, the, gar- the, the Pharisees say, okay, well, let's, we'll bribe you to say that you fell asleep and that they stole the body. If they had the body and those guys are running around saying, Jesus is risen from the dead, all they would need to do is just say, well, here's the body. Open the tomb. There he is. He's dead. But they couldn't do that. So instead they said, oh, they're making it up. And then they went after those guys and they took them down one by one by one. And they tortured them and they killed them. And not one of them recanted their story. Chuck Colson says this. He says, Watergate, so back in the day, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. And you're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Under torture and in the face of death, not one of them would say, yeah, we made that up. Yeah, no, we hid the body. All of them, save a few, would go to their death proclaiming, kill me, because he's alive. I saw him. Jesus is the living God. He's the risen one risen from the dead. And so this name to say, I am who I am, to claim that name is, a na- is to say, I am God right now. I am God right now. See, Moses, he wanted a name. He, he says, well, I need something to tell them. I can't just say, well, the God of your forefathers. I say, well, which one? Because we've had a lot. We know, you know, the one, but how do we know that's the one who appeared to you? And Moses needs a name, and this is the name God gives him. I am? I am? I'm like, if I were Moses and I said, God, I need something solid. I'm going to go to these people and I need a solid. And God said, tell them I am sent you. I'd be like, that's not very solid. That just sounds weird. I am? What does that even mean? I am? I am who I am? That's not a name. But God does this all the time. Do you know this? 
He refuses to be limited. For God to say, my name is I am, is for him to say, I'm not going to be limited by you. He does it all the time. He refuses to be limited. Later, Moses, he passes by Moses and he says his name, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and generation. And it goes on and on. And you're like, that's your name? That's what you're proclaiming your name to be? It's like, you could have just said, God, Yahweh. It would have been easier. But God says, no, I'm not going to be limited by a name. Not like Zeus, the god of thunder, or Mars, the god of war, or Baal, or Asher, or Molech. I am. I am the God who refuses to be limited, who refuses to be named. He says, I am who I am. I'm going to do what I will do. And when the people, they were like, okay, we want to make something. Like we see all those other people. They have, their gods are like, they're there. They can worship them. They can touch them. It's golden calves and like all these weird animals and weird heads and lots of things. And like, we could do that. God, can we do that? And God says, no, you can't do that. Don't make an image of me. You can't make an image of me. I'm God. I refuse to be limited. Isaiah 55, 8 to 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And Jesus' claim to be the Messiah is to say, to be the I am is to say, I'm not going to be your genie. That's not how it works. I'm not just going to be your your little God there that will do whatever you want. I am the God who will not be limited. Secondly, I am means that God is present. That God is present. Jesus is alive and he's the great I am right now. I had Mael, my my five-year-old daughter. So Usually I have quiet time in the morning before the kids wake up try to get done before them. And so sometimes one of them will wake up early. And this particular morning, it was Mael who came down and she sat next to me. And then she kind of interrupts my reading and stuff. And she says, what does God look like? And I said, what does God look like? What, 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 what do you mean? What does God look like? <gasps> what does God look like? How do I answer this question? What does God look like? Um, what, what do you mean? She said, well, I kind of think God looks like Moses. I was like, Moses? What, what do you mean, like Moses? What, what heresy have you learned? No. <laughs> what do you mean, like Moses? She says, well, I kind of, you know, the picture where he's got the big beard? Like that kind of Moses, you know? And then she says, or like Jesus. <laughs> and I was like, oh, happy heart. Like Moses? Okay. The bearded old man? We're like Jesus. I'm like, oh, that's it, isn't it? And then she goes on and she says, why did Jesus have to come from heaven? And I'm like, oh, okay, well, this is a big, like, we've talked about this before, you know. And she's like, no, 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 I mean, like, why can't he just stay there and die? Just, like, then he doesn't have to leave heaven. He could just be there and die, and then we'd be okay, but he wouldn't have to come down here. <laughs> this is good. You know what I said? I said, because love will always come and find you. Love will find you. That's how love works. I said love will find you in the darkness. I don't know where these words came from, but love will find you in the darkness. Love will find you in the mire. Love came to earth to draw near to you, Lyle, and to me, to us, to embrace us. And you know what? Love came to show us that God's not like the other gods. 
He didn't just set the world in motion and then look at it with disdain. Ugh, those people. That wasn't this God. He came, and he doesn't stand far off. He comes near, and he, he embraces us. And that love still finds you. That's the story. Like one lost sheep, like one lost coin, like one lost son or daughter, he finds you. Still today, in this moment, he reaches down and he finds you. Jesus is present. He is the God who is. And he's the God who is to come. Now, in that same conversation, I, when my kids start asking me questions, especially those kind, I like to pause whatever I'm doing and give them my full attention. I'd encourage you to do the same. These are beautiful moments. And um, so, Myel, the conversation kept going, and I don't know. We, we took a few turns here and there, but it ended up, we ended up talking about Jesus' return and uh, that he promised to come back not as a baby, but on the clouds, on a white horse, and everyone would see, and both of our eyes were shining in wonder, and I said, yeah, and, and when he comes back, every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess that he's the Lord. Everyone will know and see it then when he comes again. It's beautiful. John fourteen three says, if I go, this is Jesus, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's the promise. Jesus says, if I'm going away, which I am, I'm going to come back, and then I'm going to, you can be with me forever. We don't have to be separated again. That's the promise. And you know what? I think Jesus' second return has gotten kind of short shrift sometimes. I think it's a little bit like the the weird uncle or something, where you're like, yeah, we don't really want to talk about that, you know. It's a, probably because we've got these dates that have been said. Sometimes people will say a date, and then everyone starts panicking. Y2K, ah, what's going to happen? And then nothing happens. The world keeps turning, and then we say, oh, okay, and we're all embarrassed. Well, let's not talk about the second coming. Is just the days keep coming and everything, you know, things are bad, things were bad then, things are bad now. I don't know. Is this time? Is not? And we get a little nervous or maybe embarrassed about it, I think. But Jesus tells a story in Matthew 25, and the story he tells is about bridesmaids, or they're called virgins in the story. And they have these lamps, and they're waiting for the bridegroom to come. And they're going to do this procession to go to the, to the feast and have the wedding. And so they're waiting, and they've got their lamps, and their lamps need to be lit for the procession. And so the, the story is that there's five bridesmaids that have that are wise and they brought extra oil oil they didn't need oil that they just brought along and there's five of them that are unwise and they just brought just enough and then as they're waiting the bridegroom gets held up and he doesn't come when they're expecting it says the bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep there's this picture. They're all there waiting, and he's taking time, taking time, and it's getting late, and they fall asleep. And then suddenly, he shows up. He's there. It's time to go. And they realize, oh, no. The ones who had the extra oil, they put the oil in, and, oh, yeah, we've got enough. It's still working. Great. We have enough to get there. And the ones who don't have, they ran out, and their lamps are gone. They're out. And they say to the other ones, will you give us some oil? We need some oil. And they say, no, I just have enough for me to get there. Like, I can't give you any. 
And they say, oh, no, and they've got to go to the market to get some. And while they're gone off to the market to get some oil, the procession starts, and they go down to the feast, and the door closes. This is the story. Jesus is coming again. He's the great I am. And he's going to return and he's going to come. And it might not be when you expect it or I expect it or whoever, whatever TV evangelist expects it. Probably not. But he is coming again. And it doesn't matter whether you're ready or not. He's going to come. So what should our response be to Jesus who's coming? Should it be fear? <gasps> he's coming. Oh, no. Will I be ready? Where's my lamp? Is Where's my lamp? Do I have enough oil? I don't know. Am I the unwise? And I'm nervous. What about the world? All these things are happening. (sighs) Is that, should that that be our response to Jesus' return? This is what uh, N.T. Wright says. Our task in the present is to live as resurrection people in between Easter and the final day with our Christian life, corporate, that's all of us together, an individual in both worship and mission as a sign of the first of Easter and a foretaste of the second. As we live between those, we live demonstrating his salvation, his transforming power in our lives, his resurrection life in us. Wow, it's changed me. Look at my life. It's different. And in hope for that day where the kingdom of God comes in all its glory and everything is made right. Everything is renewed and made the way it's meant to be. And as I live between that, my life isn't meant to be lived in fear of that day when it comes, but in hope and anticipation when Jesus says, I'm going to come back and then we can be together forever. And that's going to be a beautiful day. So in conclusion, Jesus is God who was who is and who is to come. Jesus is the one who was. He has always been present with Jesus. He's in the whole story. And if you look through the whole narrative, the whole story, the whole Bible, you'll find Jesus in every story. There's the Jesus Storybook Bible that does a great job of that, where they just keep pointing to the story, the good news in every story. Jesus is the one who is. He rose from the dead. He did decisively and publicly And he's not limited by our understanding or our expectations or our demands of him. He is God. But he's also present in our struggle. Love who's coming and coming and coming. And thirdly, Jesus is the one who is to come. He's coming again, whether we're comfortable with that or not. And my hope is that all of our hope would be in that day. That we'd be looking forward toward it with anticipation and longing, longing for that beautiful day. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are the living God, that you um, you weren't even quiet about it. When you were here, you said very clearly that you are God. When you said, before Abraham was, I am, you said, I am God. I am the God who was, I am the God who is, and I am the God who is to come. And Jesus, I pray that as we ponder that, as we think on your, your statement and what that means to our lives and to our understanding of you, that you would lift our face, you'd lift our gaze to see you as you are. 
to see you in your glory, to see you in your beauty and majesty, to see you all through the story of the, of the Bible, all through Scripture, that everything is pointing to you and that you have come to set us free. You've come today in this moment at Jubilee in Maple Ridge Secondary School. You've come to meet us and you come to reach into our hearts with your love and to transform us. And I thank you that um, our hope isn't even in this moment that it's going to work out today, but that um, your kingdom will come decisively on a day that you've appointed, you've set out, and that on that day, everything will be made right. Everything will be as it should be. And that I and my friends will be set free to be fully who you made us to be. Nothing holding us down, nothing holding us back, not sin or shame or fear just looking you in the face and it will be a beautiful day. We thank you, Lord. We worship you. We lift you up.